What is spiritual abuse and how common is it? How should Christians handle spiritual abuse in the church? Our guest today, Dr. Michael Kruger, has written a new book called Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. I'm your host, Sean McDowell. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray. This is Think Biblically, a podcast brought to you by Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Michael, I got to tell you, when I first saw this book, I had two thoughts. Number one, I was surprised. I thought, wow, a New Testament scholar is weighing into the issue of spiritual abuse. And then my second thought was, thank God, because every voice that weighs into this thoughtfully is helping to move the ball forward. So maybe tell us why you, as a New Testament professor, chose to write this book. Oh, yeah. Well, you guys... You guys nailed it. Uh, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Scott. Great to be on the show. And you're exactly right. This is not a, a book that is in the topic of my normal repertoire. Normally, as perhaps some of your listeners know, I'm in the field of canon and text and, and New Testament studies. And so this is actually a book that um, I sort of wrote uh, in, in a way because I felt like it needed to be written. Um, and and I felt like, okay, if, if perhaps God is opening the doors for me to write it, maybe I, I need to write it. And perhaps... By doing so, because I'm so outside of the box, maybe I could gain a, a hearing from some people that wouldn't otherwise listen about the importance of this question. And I think that probably says a lot about our cultural moment. I think, you know, the, the, the listeners probably know I'm not the first one to talk about this issue, but many of the people who talk about this issue tend to be in certain spaces that maybe aren't getting the hearing that they, they ought to get. And so perhaps... Uh, it's an opportunity to, to be a voice into the discussion, and uh, I hope God uses it for that. Well, I, I think I, I think Sean would agree with me on this. It's been it's a very effective voice yep. in this uh, at this point. So, Mike, help our help our listeners understand what do you mean by the term spiritual abuse, and how is it different than emotional or sexual abuse? Yeah, well, as you might imagine, um, the the topic of definition is key to this whole thing, and I spent a lot of time in the book mapping out what I do mean, what I don't mean by the term spiritual abuse and how to distinguish it from other kinds of perhaps problematic behaviors that don't rise to the level of abuse. But I, I would encourage the, the listener not to get hung up on the terminology. I, I make a, a point that the terminology to some extent is secondary. Um, effectively, what we mean by spiritually abuse is a, a, a Christian leader, a leader in a position of spiritual authority that wields that authority in a way that's domineering, heavy-handed, uh, harsh, and authoritarian to those under their care. And once you realize that's the definition, all you got to do is reflect back on many, many biblical stories, some of which, of course, I cover in the book, where people are leading in exactly that way. And so that kind of um, uh, oppressive leadership style is, is what we mean by the term spiritual abuse, and it's been picked up in church history, too. I, I mentioned how uh, a number of folks have used other terms, spiritual tyranny, spiritual oppression, we use the term spiritual abuse. Uh, I think, you know, that the terminology is is neither here nor there on one level. And what makes it different from something like emotional abuse, which is also a real thing in the world, is just the spiritual dimension to it. It's done by somebody who's been put in a position, presumably by God at some level, uh, in spiritual authority over you. And so if your boss at work treats you this way, you might call that emotional abuse. But when your pastor treats you this way, now we're into the world of spiritual abuse mm -hmm. and it can be really, really damaging. One of the terms that's used sometimes with spiritual abuse is PTSD. And I got to admit, when I first heard that, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're comparing it to like war. This is overstated. But then when I really talked to people who experienced it and studied it, I thought, 
wow, there is an element where there's something about spiritual abuse that is uniquely devastating. That's exactly Why right. is spiritual abuse so devastating? Yeah, this is this is really interesting. I, I As I did my research for the book, I learned a lot myself. I felt like I had a decent grasp on some categories going in, but, but I learned a lot. And, you know, I think when you look back historically uh, in the last, you know, uh, 50 to 100 years in the church, I think our view of abuse is basically kind of like the basketball phrase, you know, no blood, no foul, you know, so you can, <laughs> as long as you're not bleeding, you know, hey, take it, you know, just take it and move on. Um, and so we've sort of minimized the problem and we've, 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 we've relegated abuse to purely physical and then not only purely physical, but also like blatantly physical, like, like literally beating somebody. But I think as time has ticked on and, and, and with the help of common grace insights from modern science and other things, realize that, wait a second, there's other ways to really harm and hurt people. And I, the reason I think spiritual abuse is so damaging, and, I, and of course, I have a whole chapter on how it's damaging, is because of the trust you have and, and the legitimate trust you have for those that God has placed in your life as, as those who are supposed to care for you spiritually. And then when that person is supposed to care for you spiritually, turns around and hurts you in profound and deep ways. There's something extra damaging there. And, and the analogy I give is it's like it's like child abuse. If you if you get a kid with a broken arm and they got that broken arm in a football game, that's that's one kind of pain. But if they got that broken arm from their mom who, who did something to them, you realize the pain is more than the physical act. Now you've got a family member who's supposed to love you, but then harms you. And that just has a whole level of mental and emotional damage. Hmm. Mike, how I don't know if you were able to get a handle on this in in your work on this, but how common would you say the problem of spiritual abuse is in our churches today? Yeah, that is really a tough question, Scott. I, I do bring this up in the book, and the and the answer I, I actually give is is we don't know. Um, you know, there's a sense in which you could make the argument that that it's not really that we're seeing an increase in abuse we're seeing an increase in awareness of abuse. So you might be able to say that this level of abuse has kind of always been there, and we're just more aware of it now, perhaps through social media and so on. And I think that's possible. My, my gut, though, and, and I don't have, there's no hard statistics on this because spiritual abuse is still so much a, a topic that's at the front end of its research. But my own gut is I do think there's been a spike. I do think there's been an increase in it. And I do think that it's possible that a lot of that is the result of the cultural moment we're in. We're in a cultural moment where the church is being disparaged and relegated and, and being told it doesn't mean anything. And so, understandably, I think pastors are feeling like their authority is in doubt and their authority is in question. And sometimes when you feel like your authority is in doubt or is in question, you, you can react one of two ways. One, you can just give it up entirely. Or two, you can double down on it and make sure you really want to remind people of your authority a lot. And I feel like a lot of folks have fallen into that second camp. In order to, 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 to counteract the cultural anti-authority movement, we feel like, well, we better show people that we really mean it. And I think that's led to some abuses of authority. Let me sort of relate it to that. I'm curious if you, if you were able to connect any of this, because, I mean, it seems to me one of the things that makes this so serious is that, one, it, yeah, it, it, these are spiritual leaders who people have entrusted their lives and often the lives of their families to. But I could see that it would have a spillover effect onto their own faith itself. How? I mean, do you is that is that a common thing that if they're uh, abused by a pastor, it has they sort of project that onto God? 
Oh, yeah. You mean the victim of abuse? Yes. Is that what? You, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I think makes spiritual abuse particularly damaging is, of course, the broken trust. We mentioned that. But also the, the sort of, you know, unofficial link that someone makes in their mind where they, they begin to assume that God must be like this person that's leading them. Because in one sense, they do represent God, right? I mean, at some level. Uh, a pastor does represent God, not not that they're inspired or anything like that, but they do at, at some level represent uh, God. And so people begin to think, well, God's displeased with me. God's mad at me all the time. God's harsh with me. God has a short temper with me, and it can really do damage. And one of the big things that happens to people who are victims of spiritual abuse is they begin to question their faith. They begin to question the goodness of the church. And we see a lot of people deconverting actually, in mm. light of uh, that spiritual abuse. I don't think it's a surprise in our cultural moment that we have a lot of con- conversation about deconversion. At the same time, we're having a large, lot of conversations about abuse in the church. For the past 18 months or so, I've been reading a lot of books on abuse, listening to lectures, talking to people who've experienced spiritual abuse, talking to some experts. And one of the things is I just see stuff now that I would not have seen before. You could almost say like, my eyes have been opened up to see certain things. And you talk about in your book how when somebody is accused of spiritual abuse, it's like they just follow a certain script, and you see that same script in different churches, different organizations, and it involves like covering their tracks, flipping the script when charges are raised against them. So maybe lay out for us just a few things that people do to cover their tracks, flip the script— when charges are raised that someone has spiritual abused somebody else. Yeah. One of the things that I was struck by too, Sean, is that in my own research, it, it, how, how eerily similar all these different cases are that mm. I've studied. I mean, each of them have their own nuances, of course, and their own particularities. But at the end of the day, it's, it is almost like everyone's playing off the same playbook. Um, in fact, it's so much that way that when when, when I did my my uh, my blog series, and then even when the book has just been out a month, I've been inundated with emails from people saying, "Are are you talking about my church? Are, are <laughs> Holy you, are, cow! Are you talking about yeah. my pastor? Was was my pastor part of your research? Because you've just described my pastor mm. exactly, um, and that is kind of frightening to, to be honest. Um, and I think it it speaks to the type of abusive patterns that, 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 that when, you, when you misuse your leadership, it does fall into certain tracks and trajectories. So, you know, there's ways that people try to cover their tracks, as you indicated. And I mentioned some of these book in, some of these in the book, and they include things like, you know, silencing the victim so no one even knows there's a conflict at all, um, driving out uh, the people who are, uh, who, who are the victims so that the, the, the problem never surfaces and is never explained or, or shown to the board. Um, there's retaliatory accusations. This is probably one of the saddest and most common tactics is that, you know, you have an abusive leader and instead of them being admitting they have a problem, they just dredge up all these claims about the victims in their sense. So these people are, you know, overly sensitive. These people have their own sin patterns. These people are slanderers and so forth. And so the tragedy of spiritual abuse isn't just that the spiritual abuser gets away with it, so to speak but that the people who are the victims actually are the ones who are attacked and maligned. And that is just so tragic. And actually, when you sit down from, from the, across the table with abuse victims and, and, and see the tears in their eyes and hear their stories, you realize, whoa, this is, this is more significant than I realize, and it's, and it's very sobering. Hmm. 
Yeah, Mike, I, you know, I, w- I wonder, you, you have a good section in the book about the leadership qualities that many of our churches look for versus what the Scripture says we ought to look for. But, I, you know, I just, I wonder, you know, I, why, why do so many of our churches select narcissistic pastors yeah. to, to lead them? Yeah, we we are at a point in the American church, at least, and, and I would say in American theological education, which the three of us, right, are all involved in, where we have probably focused more on competency and doctrine than we have on character. Um, and it is true that doctrine matters. Uh, it matters a lot, and I know we would all agree with that, but we also know in Scripture that, that, that having right doctrine does not mean you have right character, and I point out in the book, that when it comes to the qualifications for ministry, that that character outnumbers doctrine or outnumbers outnumbers giftedness about twelve to one. It's it's a shocking imbalance that I think perhaps we've even reversed. And I, and there's probably lots of reasons why we've reversed it, um, and we could unpack some of those. And I, I'll be even eager to hear your thoughts. I think there is a sense though that churches feel like they're in competition to become the the, the next great thing. Um, in such a way that we idolize success, and the way you succeed in American culture is you find a franchise player to build your team around. And so it's not that different than sports or business. You, you get a great CEO, or you get LeBron James on your team, and you go win. And so I think churches recruit what they think are powerful, dynamic leaders so they can become what they want to be. And they don't realize that the goal in the first place is maybe the problem. Why is the goal to always be a superpower church? Why can't the goal just be to faithfully shepherd the people that God has given you? And so I think there's something in the water there that has led to the desire to get leaders like this. I think it's really helpful when you spend time walking through that spiritual abuse really is a problem of leadership. And we just have systems set up that encourage this. And we got to take a deep look at who we hire, what the Bible says about leadership, and even the terminology. I'm trying to remember the terminology you said. Rather than pastor, it was key servant. What was the yeah. terminology? Yeah, uh, servant minister mm. was the was the the language. The, the word minister actually is the word uh, a servant in the Greek. And um, and one of the things I, I I make a point of is that too many churches have taken the the servanthood quality and and assumed it's only tr- should be only true of deacons. And so if you meet somebody who's a servant-hearted person, we use that language sometimes in the church, we think of that person as, oh, you'll make a good deacon, and we kind of kind of, you know, uh, direct them into that, that trajectory. What I was trying to say is that, no, the, the, the concept of a servant-hearted person is actually what an elder should be, a pastor. Mm. Um, and why are we assuming that it's just deacons? It should be, first of all, generally speaking, all Christians, but particularly the minister. So you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the term senior pastor is is wrong or sinful. No, I, I know titles are complicated things. Sure. But the but I even made the point that even how you view yourself, even if you don't change the title on the church letterhead, I mean, maybe you just viewing yourself as a of a servant minister instead of a, a senior pastor uh, could could maybe even in mentally and in and, and theologically help remind you what your real role is. Well, and I think it's sort of ironic, too, that we typically don't view deacons as leaders. Yeah, uh, we view elders and pastors as leaders, and deacons are the servants. And it seems like we just we have mixed the categories up in some pretty harmful ways. Um, so here's like let's let's say 
you know, someone has committed spiritual abuse um, and they've been confronted about it, they recognize that sort of, sort of like somebody who has affairs, you know, or is sleeping around on their wife or something like that. They're confronted, they admit it, they confess, um, and then they want, they want to be restored back into their position of uh, spiritual authority. What, what kinds of things, in your view, have to happen before someone can be you know, restored back to a leadership position, if at all? Uh, yeah, and, that's, and, that's and a great it, question. It may it may be that you know being guilty of spiritual abuse is you know maybe disqualifying for lo- maybe longer than we first think. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. In the book, I, I I don't ever get to that question because the book was designed, of course, to just deal with how to recognize and stop abuse. But you raise a great question: is okay. Let's assume that you've done that. How do you think through? what you do after that with this abusive leader. Do they get restored? Do they get put back in, in, in leadership? And I think uh, I have a few thoughts on that. For, first of all, um, I think, you know, you're going to be looking for evidence of, of genuine repentance from that abusive leader. And I can tell you this, because uh, I've seen these cases and I've studied them in my own research. There's, there's a level at which many spiritual abusers will acknowledge something but they often don't acknowledge the, the, the severity or the depth of it. They'll, they'll say things like, yeah, I know I can be a little rough around the edges. Yeah, I realize I'm a strong leader that ruffles people's feathers. Yeah, I can sometimes, you know, say things in, in you know, direct ways. And so they'll sort of pat it as if it's not really abusive. It's not really a problem. It's just a little bit of a, a personality flaw. So I think the first step in whether a person could ever even possibly be restored is do they really comprehend that they that they are behaving in a way that's 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 contrary to the fundamental direction that God calls a shepherd to be. The other thing that I think is a sign of repentance is the willingness to give up power. Um, spiritual abusers, the main thing is to retain uh, control, and so one sign of repentance is in a willingness to let that go, to say I'm stepping down, I'm 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 voluntarily not going to wait to be removed. I'm going to voluntarily step down and say I got issues and I'm going to have to go deal with them. As far as whether they can ever be restored, I mean, it depends on the severity, depends on the level of repentance, depends on the time that passes. Um, and those all are complicating factors, obviously. But I certainly would say this. We would, we would need to be very cautious and very patient about restoring spiritual abusers to positions of authority because that's the very thing that got them in the trouble in the first place. You know, one thing I'd be inclined to do is some, somewhere in that restoration process to require them to, to serve in ways that they mm. think are beneath them. Yeah, like have have an assignment in a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or, uh, you know, out among the poor in the community. Something something that they they in in, in their previous life would never have been caught dead doing. What, yeah, what, do, you, what the, do you make the, of something like that? No, I, absolutely. And I think you're just trying to get at the fundamental issue, which is an issue of humility and lowliness. One of the things about spiritual abusers is is not only do they think everybody else is the problem and not them, but there's a hierarchical top-down issue there. And, and, and as a side note, it's not just a, a hierarchical issue with one person. Usually it's a systemic uh, built-in hierarchy, right? And so that's another corollary question that, that needs to be addressed too at some point, which is that it's not just the, the, the one individual that's the problem. Sometimes it's the larger church culture that's the problem. Uh, but, but the point is, is that that, that that type of culture does not allow for humble people to, to excel, <laughs> and so we, in one sense, have created cultures where humility isn't even allowed at some level. Uh, and so in order to get someone 
to, to get back on track, we need to see evidence of that humility. And I think you're right. We could we could ask them to pursue certain things to demonstrate that. But those are those are hard things to show and hard things to evaluate. You know, Michael, if I'm going to be totally honest, I don't have a lot of confidence in most churches being able to recognize spiritual abuse, genuinely bring about the right kind of repentance, and then restore somebody back to ministry. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, before I really started studying this topic 18 months ago, I was pretty confident that I could do that. But this research has made me realize, holy cow, there are experts and levels to this I did not understand. Mm-hmm. And I also see a ton of stories in just the media and the church today where people are rushing right back into leadership and this pastor gave approval and I pause, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Yeah. It, it almost feels like the pressure is to get somebody back into ministry really quickly rather than to make sure all the damage that has been done has been reconciled first and we've learned from it, then move forward. Yes. Is that your sense? It is. Uh, you know, these these things we see play out, and I think we all know even in recent weeks we've seen some of this play out, where there seems to be a, a rush to restore that I would say is abuser-centric, not victim-centric. Yes. And so it's like all the attention is on, well, this guy's doing his best, and we don't want to leave him by the side of the road. We want to get this guy back. And, and I'm like, what about the victims? Have we talked about them? Have we lamented over what happened to them? Have we talked about the suffering they've endured? And so I think there's a focus there that's that's, that's broken. But you're right. I think our, the trust level of many people out there, Sean, beyond yourself, I think shares your your feeling, which is I don't know that I feel like many churches are able to do this very well. And, and this is why one of the things I recommend in the book is churches getting outside help. I recommend not only genuinely independent third party investigations for abuse accusations, but also that same genuinely third party pers- uh, group helping churches understand it and how to how to deal with it. And then eventually, if ever possible, restore someone after it, which is a complicated question, because most people in churches, even if they love Jesus and are solid Christians, just don't have an awareness of the complexities of the problem. Mike, I think a common misunderstanding when, when spiritual abuse takes place is to, to not not name it for what it is, but to see it as a conflict between two mm. s- some, somewhat equals yes. who, should, who should follow Matthew 18. If we get these two <laughs> brothers or two sisters into the same room together, they can work it out. Oh, that's but, exactly right. But you suggest something. You suggest that that's a really bad idea. How, <laughs> how, how come? Yeah, so um, the, the idea of abuse being simply conflict is one of the biggest mistakes that churches make. And, and I think this is as evidence, actually, of just a lack of understanding of what they're seeing and this, this desire, and, some, and somewhat I understand the desire, but desire to quickly solve it and get everybody in a room where you can hug and apologize to each other and move on. And so this, there's a peacemaking impetus there, which I understand and I appreciate the desire for peacemaking. But I would, I would remind churches, and I do in my book, that that abuse is not simply a conflict. It's not two equals who have offended one, offended the other, and you go in the room and apologize. But rather, it's someone who's uh, hurt and oppressed someone else by by misusing their spiritual authority. And in that case, you have to look at it in the full picture. In Matthew 18, and that's a very important biblical text, and I address it in the book, is not is not a one size fits all thing. Um, and I'll give you an example of this. You know, when Bill Hybels' case, that's a public case, and I mentioned it in the book, when Bill Hybels was accused of sexually 
um, uh, abusing these women in the church. The women came forward to the leadership and, and, and brought their concerns, and they were actually rebuked for not going to Bill Hybels privately. Um, and I think that's just a profound misunderstanding of the way abuse works. I, I can't imagine telling my wife to go back into the room alone with Bill Hybels and say, hey, you sexually uh, assaulted me. Um, that seems uh, completely contrary to the intent of, of Matthew 18, and it also overlooks the church's obligation to protect the people under its care. So I try to nuance Matthew 18, uh, recognizing, of course, how important it is, but it's, 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 it's more nuanced than most people give it credit for. And I think back to one of the earlier questions we had about the damage of spiritual abuse is how Scripture is weaponized against people is particularly painful and just mm. adds to the spiritual abuse. And Matthew 18 is a passage that often uh, falls into that. W- one last question for you. Uh, what can churches do to create a climate in which spiritual abuse claims are taken seriously? Now, before you answer this, let me just answer what I think every church should do. And I don't know that I've done this with a book before. I think every church needs to get a copy of your book, Bully Pulpit, study it, talk about it, discuss it, and then start to create a climate where they will see this kind of abuse set up a system to recognize when spiritual abuse happens that doesn't favor the one who's being charged or the one who's raising the complaint, but deals with it fairly. So as you answer this question, I want to get it out there for you, Michael. My (laughs) two senses, I don't think I've endorsed a book as strongly, but it is eye-opening, it's convicting, it's quick, easy to follow, it's practical. Step number one, I want pastors to get a copy of Bully Pulpit and take their staff through it. But give us some other steps that uh, churches can do to better recognize spiritual abuse and deal with it. Yes, thank you, Sean, and and, and thank you for that that very kind uh, shout out there. I really appreciate it. And, and my prayer is that churches would use this as a tool, and I and I hope it's helpful to them. In in the last chapter of my book, I, I spend my time trying to bring out the practical applications that you hinted at of what churches can do to to deal with cases that they that they are faced with. And you know what's interesting about that last chapter is that after I wrote it, I thought to myself, wow, this this is all so basic and so simple and so non-rocket science. Um, But I also realize how few churches actually do it. And what you realize is that sometimes the most basic things can still really make a huge difference. So I mentioned a ton of them. Of course, I won't mention all of them in this brief moment. But some of the things I really encourage churches to do is first, when they hire a pastor, you've got to think better about your vetting technique of their character. You, you can't rely on, I got my two best friends to write me a recommendation system any longer. There has to be some really deeper dive into the character you hire, uh, of the person you hire. And then once you hire them, the accountability structure needs some deep consideration. There needs to be a way people can come forward with concerns without retaliation, uh, without getting fired, without getting their, their lives destroyed. And so there has to be a system that they're protected as the, as a, as an independent investigation uh, ensues. Uh, and then one of the things I really encourage is a, a posture of transparency and openness in churches, which includes annual reviews of all the staff, annual reviews of the senior leader, and open sharing of those reviews uh, in, in, a, in a way that allows people to be confident that nothing's being hidden or swept under the rug. So there's a number of things in that final chapter that get at that, but I think some of the recommendations I have are really kind of simple, but if they would be followed, I, I, I hope and pray they really would make a difference uh, in the long run for churches today. You know, Michael, it's real interesting. I had a conversation a number of months ago with Rachel Den Hollander, and I know you know who she is. We've had of her course. on our podcast. 
was one of the former gymnasts, now a lawyer, who really broke the Larry Nasser sex mm-hmm. abuse scandal so widespread in gymnastics at the time, and now has committed herself to helping victims in the church. And uh, we were talking about a particular issue, and I just made some kind of comment like, this is taking so much of my time away from my ministry. And she's like, uh, Sean, this is a part of ministry. Uh-huh. Even your yeah. ministry in apologetics, it's it is true. one of the biggest objections people have, how poorly we handle abuse, how mm-hmm. poorly the church uses power. And that was such a game-changing thought for me that this should be a part of all of our ministries in greater and lesser degrees. So that's why, whether somebody's a church leader or not, I really hope they'll pick up your book, Bully Pulpit. And as a New Testament scholar, we appreciate you writing it. I'm guessing you're going to get people trying to drag you into doing counseling. You're probably going to take some (laughs) criticism for this, but really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for, for coming on. Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you guys. Grateful for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including the Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.